hopefully, but I think we have the exact right number right now. That will be good. So if you want to turn in Colossians 2, that's where we'll be. We'll start in Colossians 2 today. Um, at some point when I get my mind around some things, we'll start uh, like grabbing together uh, some stuff from chapter 1 um, and, and bringing it forward into our study of chapter 2 and the later stuff. Um, the reason that's important is because uh, sometimes when you read the Bible, like our minds, because of the way we're, we're sort of taught to read books, everything to the left no longer matters. Only what's right in front of us and what's to the right is what's important. You see what I'm saying? Right? When you're like reading a chapter book, like maybe you remember some big events from the previous uh, chapters or paragraphs or whatever. But in the Bible, first of all, it all matters because it's the Bible. But two, especially when you're dealing with short letters like this, I mean, every word is chosen carefully. And they're going to have relation to one another. And Paul is going to return to themes in, in later chapters that he was uh, addressing in, in the beginning. Uh, so we'll do that uh, as we go. Uh, not really today. I will bring in some from the end of chapter 1. But as I say that about chapters, I want to remind you that chapter divisions are not included in the original text. Right? Paul didn't in his mind go... All right, I'm done with chapter 1 now. I'm tired. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and drink my coffee and start chapter 2. Right? We don't know if he wrote it all in one sitting. That's not very important. But we do know that he wrote it as one cohesive letter, one coherent and united uh, letter. And what he does in chapter 2 is he begins as if he's still talking about his efforts in the ministry. Um, and all the, the heartache and whatnot. We'll get to that in just a moment. I'll read the first. I think uh, we're going to read eight verses there. Um, do you know when uh, the chapter divisions were added to the Bible? You think it was a thousand years ago? 500 years ago? Yeah. It was just before the Reformation. It was when the printing press began to be picking up and all those things were started and they were helping them. I want to say it was, uh, I should have looked this up because I thought about it last night, but I didn't write it down. But it was someone in, uh, in Switzerland where they were beginning to print and talk about uh, getting the Latin Bible out to people, the Greek Bible out to people. And I think the first English translation with it was the first, uh, the early Geneva Bibles. Um, but I'll double check myself on that and try to report back to you on it. But I know it was just before the Reformation, uh, just uh, like Mr. Ed said, around that time. All right, so um, chapter 2. Let's read the first eight verses. Paul says, For I would, I wish, that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, 
to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments, the elementary principles or the elements of the world, and not after Christ. Amen. Okay, so beginning chapter 2. Notice that Paul is still talking about his uh, ministerial efforts, right? Look back at the end of chapter 1, and you see the very last verse, we can just look at that, where he's talking about preaching, and he says, unto this I also labor, striving according to his, that's Christ Jesus' working, who works in me mightily, right? So he's still talking about that, let's call it that internal conflict, right? As he moves on over into chapter 2, and he says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you. Uh, If you look at Philippians 1, so flip just a couple pages to the left in your Bible, Philippians 1, verses 29 and 30, Paul's talking about the same thing, and he uses the same word in verse 30, but I want to read verse 29 as well. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict, same word there, which you saw in me, and now here to be in me as well. So I'm not just saying it's the same English word, it's also the same Greek word, that he is, uh, as it were, showing in Philippians that they are sharing in the conflict. And here in Colossians, he's using it a little bit differently and saying, this is the conflict that I have, that I am laboring for you. But notice that he also includes two other groups. Uh, He's laboring for Laodicea. And then what's the other group? As many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So other groups, right? Remember that uh, in Colossians 1, Paul talked about how Epaphras was basically the founding pastor of the church at Colossae, that they had benefited from his ministry, that he had known uh, the apostles. That's back in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. It says, as you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. So Paul didn't start physically right? the church at Colossae. Uh, This gentleman, Epaphras, was very instrumental in it, and we spent some time on that. Uh, But here, he also mentions uh, Laodicea. If you look at chapter 4, verse 16 of Colossians, you'll see that Laodicea is also mentioned there. When this epistle is read among you, he's talking about Colossians, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. So, This epistle that I've written you, Colossians, make sure that the Laodiceans read this too. Evidently, they were having some of the same errors, maybe. 
but then also, notice what he says at the end of the verse, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So make a swap, right? Y'all trade with them so y'all can both hear what I'm saying to both churches. Now, why don't we have the epistle to Laodicea? It's a very, very, very simple answer. Because we don't need it. <laughs> it's there somewhere that we... It's, it's, it's found. It's, it's there, but they, we don't need it. Or, no, I, I would... No, I would argue that we don't need it. And that's why the, the church is... There's never been, to my knowledge, a uh, possession of this letter outside of the early New Testament period. And because God preserves his word for his church, we don't have Laodiceans, therefore he didn't want us to have that letter. Not that there's anything bad or wrong in it, but we didn't need it. Right? Just like in the end of the Gospel of John... John says there's not enough books in the world to write everything that Jesus did. But we have plenty. We have what we need, is the point. Right? So why don't we have that letter? We don't need it. Right? In the wisdom of God, he decided that we don't need it. So Paul is uh, experiencing this great conflict, not just for the church at Colossae, not just for the church at Laodicea, but for all the other churches as well as... Uh, that he had not seen face to face, meaning those that he was just a spiritual father to and had not uh, been to labor in their midst yet. Um, let's see here. Yes. Okay, let's move down a little bit to verse 2. Um, he's telling them what he's laboring for. You know how the, the, the um, kind of the internal turmoil you feel as a parent for your children, right? That desire you have for them to grow. Imagine having that for hundreds of people. That's similar to what Paul is saying here, right? That he wouldn't have had that biological relation, but he had that spiritual relation, not just to the church at Colossae, not just to the church at Laodicea, but also to all these other churches as well that had benefited from his ministry. Because remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the chief messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. So he has a real burden in his soul for these people. And I would say it's similar to the way we feel as parents towards our children, grandparents towards grandchildren, and all those things. But imagine having it for that many people. We don't know how many. Um, but another point that you need to know uh, about 99% of the time, maybe 100% of the time, when you're talking about a letter to uh, a church, it's not a letter to a congregation. It's a letter to a group of churches in that city or in that region. Because right? Colossae, you know, it wasn't just one little tiny body of people. And you look and do some research on the churches in Revelation, it was the same thing. They were areas that were being addressed, these seven different areas. Yes, there were probably cities named after them, but they were not just one little small group. Um, and anyway, that adds to the, the burden of the ministry, as it were, for Paul. And he says this is what the great conflict he's having for them is towards, right? So he's having a conflict within himself 
because he wants verse 2 and following to be true of them, because he wants everything that we've covered in chapter 1 to be knit in their hearts, right? He says that you would be comforted, right? I hope that as we read and studied chapter 1, that you were comforted by the glorious riches of who Jesus Christ is. Right? And he's, des- he's desiring that for them as well. But he's also desiring that they would be knit together in love. Right? So comfort in their hearts, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches. So it's, it's kind of phrased funny there, but he's having this internal conflict for basically what amounts to three descriptions um, hearts being comforted, knit together in love to all the riches of the full assurance, like so, or assurance or whatever, assurance of understanding. And then ultimately, too, or grounded in, the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's talk about this being knit together in love for a moment. And this brings us to what is our first quote on your handout. And this is from John Davenant. Remember, he has the uh, Banner of Truth commentary on Colossians, and it is colossal in size, uh, but it's recognized as one of the greatest um, Protestant and Reformed commentaries on Colossians, possibly the best, but you can be the judge of that. So here's the quote from John Davenant. says, Love is, so they're knit together in love, remember, love is therefore the fruit of, of unanimity in faith, which so binds the minds of the godly, as it were, in a covenant, that though some light offenses may intervene, yet, as the limbs of the same tree, driven apart by the wind, immediately come together again, because they are fixed steadily in one and the same root. So something similar takes place as it regards the minds of the faithful because they are still rooted in the same faith. Right? So he's saying that Paul is desiring this unanimous, this uh, equal and evened out love among the people of God that binds them together such that even when the winds come, remember how Paul talks about the winds of every doctrine in another place? Right? Even when the winds come, that though they might be shaken for a moment, that because of their rootedness in the truth, because they are knit together, not just in love towards Christ, but in love towards one another, that it would draw them back together into a, uh, a firm footing so that their hearts might be comforted and also knit together in love. And, he says, that they'd be brought unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, namely, of the Father and of Christ. Um, when, when you, sometimes when I, I see a word in, in the Bible, it, it kind of puts a picture in my mind. And it, if you're talking about Paul desiring that they would uh, come unto something right it almost it, what it puts in my mind is like he wants them to see in this room of all these riches that he's described for them that they would come unto it right or come into it is the idea 
that they would see what has been brought and given to them in Christ and that they would have full assurance of understanding it because they were already uh, losing comfort in their hearts right? because of this dangerous error that was lurking around the church. And whether they realized it or not, Paul is trying to communicate this to them. I'm desiring that your hearts would be comforted because your hearts are already being unsettled because of this great error that's moving around in Colossae. They were not being knit together in love. And you don't really get a full description of uh, all the divisions uh, in the church, but I'm sure, like any other church, when error was running amok, they were being divided. But if he's desiring that they'd be knit together in love, it's because there was already on the horizon the fact that they weren't. That they were possibly being knit together in hate or in a temptation of the truth or a temptation towards error away from the truth. They may have been able to say that they had some riches, but notice that Paul doesn't say in the middle of verse 2 that it would be unto riches, but he says unto all riches, right? That they would have all riches of full assurance of understanding. Quite frankly, St. Paul seeks to prove that they are in danger of rejecting the understanding that they had. That's not to say that they had an insufficient understanding. Paul is not saying learn more. In fact, he says in verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, meaning as we've already told you, As you've already come to believe, so walk in Him. We're not giving you something new like these teachers, these false teachers. You've learned this about Christ, but you're beginning to be tempted and possibly some were beginning to move away from the truth. The truth is they were not moving from good to better, but from the greatest to the worst. Um, There's an old book that... It's not old, but it's uh, maybe 10 or 15 years old now, and it's called uh, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And the book is not very good. But the title is, right? It carries a wonderful truth. Um, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And that's basically the message that Paul is driving at. You can't add anything to Christ and ultimately benefit from it. You lose everything rather than gain. Yes. I was just just thinking, in cases where people were, you know, he's warning against wandering away, Mm -hmm. the church wandering away, the group wandering. You know, it kind of blows my mind when you think about the fact that they didn't have copies of the Bible in their hands. And so, you know, between the oral tradition and what was left from the Old Testament and all, I mean, it must have been, it can only be the Holy Spirit that was pulling them together and continuing worship because they didn't have, you know, today we'd say, hey, you guys need to, need, this right here is the word of God. You, you know, you church, if you're not listening to this, this is, this is it. Or you Modern need to go home and study. Yeah. I mean, it, they didn't have that, right? Right. So what did they? Yeah, well, they had, in the early period, they would have, uh, 
especially the congregations that had a uh, Jewish background, somebody somehow would have had copies of the Old Testament. But also the apostolic letters and the gospels are beginning to make their way around. They're just starting. And, 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 and let's face it, he's talking about, yeah, the Old Testament, but at the same time, this is the New Testament, and it, you didn't have it. You very, yeah. very little. It's just And you know, the, the truth, one of the many truths that's behind that is the sufficiency of even the smallest amount of Scripture. Yeah. Right? That they could be fully built up in Christ and know him that is. with the little bit that they had. And how weak are we with the abundance that we have? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you raise your hand and you're scratching. Uh, you, I saw a finger like go up. I don't know if you were scratching or, or something. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Um, so the truth is, again, that they were not moving from good to better, but from the greatest uh, to the worst. And before I move on, uh, I want to address one more thing that Tom said. And this is uh, something that has an Old Testament background as well, that yes, the reading and studying of Scripture is important for the Christian. Absolutely. But as you said, and not just them, but for the majority of history even thus far, um, people did not have full copies of the Bible. What is the chief thing that God encourages believers to do from the beginning to the end, scriptures not read. Right. Hear. Right. Yes, pray. Yeah. Yeah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was the way that they did from the, from the get go because only certain ones ever read the Torah. So they were standing to the side. When God brought about memorizing. Uh, right. Yeah. When God brought about great reformation. In the church, I'm talking about like that's laid out in the scriptures. It was because the scriptures were read in the presence of the people so that they could hear them again. Right? Uh, the book of Isaiah is filled with that word hearken or listen. Right? And it shows that the chief uh, aspect of the Christian life in relation to the Bible is listening. Yes, we listen when we read too. But you see the importance of hearing the word of God, and you bring up a good point uh, that really emphasizes that as well. Um, these people, they claim to know mysteries, but they failed to grasp the mystery, or they were in danger of losing their grasp on it. Coming to understand that mystery, Paul implies, leads you to see that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And what's ironic about his use of the word hidden there is he doesn't mean hidden at all. He means revealed. Right? They are revealed in Christ. That means they are kept in Christ and you find them in him. And here's your next quote. This is uh, from an early church father, John Chrysostom, talking about this very short quote, that word hid in Christ. He himself knows all things hid for you ought to think not in truth that you already have all speaking directly to the colossians but us by implications they are hidden also even from these angels not just from you so that you ought to ask all things from him 
drawing a focus to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, comforted, knit together in love, to all riches of full assurance of understanding, to, right, for the ultimate goal of the acknowledgement of the mercy of God. And I love that, that word. Uh, I think most modern translations say to the knowledge or to knowledge of the mystery of God. And it is, it's kind of a, a, uh, an insult by Paul because what he's implying is that these false teachers have no knowledge of it. They're not acknowledging the mystery of God. They might be teaching you another mystery, but the ultimate mystery is the mystery of God, namely that which is taught in Colossians about the Father and Christ, that the Father hid this purpose in Christ and has now revealed it. And it is in Christ, verse 3, in him that all uh, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden and again, it's a very ironic use of the word hidden because he doesn't mean hidden at all. He means revealed in Christ. Um, next quote on verse 3. This is from uh, Douglas Moo, uh, a uh, modern commentator that has a really good grasp, in my opinion, on Paul's letters. Although he's a, a Baptist, but he's got a good grasp on it. He's a very good scholar. His commentaries are worth reading. Uh, But he says this about verse 3. He says, This verse is the Christological high point of the letter. And what he means by that is the greatest thing that's said about Christ in Colossians is this verse. Verse 3. It does not match the hymn of chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. What he means there is there's a lot of scholars that take verses 15 to 20 to be an early church hymn that they would sing. There's very little proof of that, uh, but based on the way it's written in the Greek, it is kind of uh, poetical in nature and could be easily sung. Um, Just because there's not proof of it doesn't mean it wasn't a hymn, but 
Anyway, he said it does not match the hymn of chapter 1, verse 15 to 20 for exalted language in reference to Christ. Right? So it's not complicated. But it expresses beautifully and compactly the cutting-edge Christological point that is Paul's driving concern. And that is this. Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. So his argument is, verse 3, it's the Christological high point. The greatest thing that's said about Christ in Colossians is found, in his opinion, and I think he's on to something, is in verse 3. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And because it is so easy to understand, that's what makes it the high point, because you can't forget it. It's so simple to grasp. Let's talk about words for just a moment, Um, because he says in verse 4, this I say, right? Um, Some commentators say uh, when he says this in verse 4, this I say, meaning everything that he's already said in the letter, that's possible, or the most, uh, or uh, it would just refer to the more immediate context. I don't think it really matters because it's all really talking about the same thing anyway. Uh, But this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, right? So beguile is an old word that means deceive. Uh, But Paul knows the persuasive power of words. And this was kind of jumping into my mind, and I had to resist getting ahead of myself when Mr. Tom was talking about it. But Paul wrote words to them, and he warns them about words as well. What am I getting at here? You have to understand the danger of words as well. You are led to or you are led from the truth by words, aren't you? You begin to believe insane things because of how words make you feel and think on whatever the speaker is referring to. You devote your whole life to whatever you choose because of words, don't you? You are here today because of words. You are here today because of the word. In the beginning was the word, right? There's something to this. Words are powerful, both in one direction and the other, both towards truth and away from it. They are, words in general, are meant to teach us about the word. Not just the words of the Bible are meant to teach us that, but words in general. We are supposed to derive from the power of speech, the power of words, what it is for Christ to be the word. They are to prepare us in our souls for seeing what it is for Christ to be the Word of God, right? Because when he's called the Word of God, right, we can think of him as the greatest Word. All words are meant to lead us to the Word. I'm really stretching language here. Words are powerful because the Word is powerful, and they derive their force from him. 
The King James uses the phrase enticing words. The New King James uses persuasive words. The ESV says, much to my disappointment, plausible arguments. Right? Why does that disappoint me? Because if you were to see the Greek word, um, I'm going to write it up here just so I can show it to you. Of course, I'm not going to be able to remember how to spell it between here and there, so I'll take this with me. <clears throat> but I want you to tell me what you see in... That's not writing. What you see in this word here, and I'll underline it to help you out, because I know most of us can't read Greek. Heck, I can barely read it. I'm going to write it out in English below the Greek so you can see it. But it's P I. T-H-A-N-O-L-O-G-I-A. Logic. Logos. Words. Word. Right? So that the word word is literally there in Paul's, uh, in his writing in the Greek. And it's two English words being slammed together um, if we were reversing it back into Greek, it's like two words put together, right? I wonder if, like, uh, our word pithy comes from this, like, yeah, pithy speech or whatever. But um, anyway, it means enticing or persuasive words. And it doesn't have a negative context just in general. If you look at verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you uh, through philosophy, etc., etc., right? So he's he's warning them there as well. Uh, in verse 18 of chapter 2, let no man beguile you, right? So there's the warning again. And then in verse 23, these things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship, humility, etc., etc., right? So he's giving them this multitude of warnings about enticing words, right? And it literally has the word word there in it right? to show the power of of words. Let's look at this next quote where uh, I think this is Mu again. Um, yeah. All right. So let's look at this quote because he, he explains it uh, very powerfully, I think. He says, The theology and especially the high Christology of chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 has then a direct practical purpose to keep believers from being deceived by fine sounding arguments. This phrase translates a single Greek word, there it is on the board, pithonologia, <clears throat> which has a neutral meaning. That means that like, when you see it in other places, it's not necessarily bad, right? It's just that the arguments are persuasive, right? And they use words. But the context here obviously requires a negative connotation. And there is some lexical basis for this nuance. That means that in the history of the Greek language, they have justification for it being referred to negatively. And he refers to Plato. He associates pithonologia with popular oratory and warns about accepting conclusions on this basis rather than on the basis of a cogent proof. So for us, paying too much attention to fine-sounding arguments can deceive us 
about religious and spiritual truth. Paul has no doubt about the vital importance of spiritual truth, and he knows how perilously easy it is for believers to be led astray by high-flown rhetoric, or in our day, by multimedia presentations. That tells you when his commentary was written, because that's not really uh, all that much of a thing anymore. But the antidote for such false teaching, he says, is the cogent proof of Christ's absolute supremacy and exclusivity. This is why he puts so much weight on chapter 2, verse 3. Because that very simple stated phrase, which he argues, is the Christological high point of Colossians. If they grasp that, they grasp everything. Right? No matter how enticing the arguments are, they are not to draw you away from this very simple truth that in Christ all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden or revealed. No matter how plausible or how cogent the arguments might appear, if they attack that truth, they are dangerous. But Paul sounds, in my opinion, in verse 5, very optimistic. Where he says, uh, it, it seems to show that they have yet to fully embrace this error. He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Maybe he's just speaking optimistically, which he does on occasion. Um, but he's at least uh, open to the idea that all had not embraced this error. He is with them in spirit. Do you know another passage in the New Testament where Paul uses this type of language? It talks about being with them in spirit. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, where he's calling on them to put a man out of the congregation under church discipline because he was having relations with his father's wife. He says, I will be there with you in spirit when you gather in the power of the Lord Jesus in order to perform this action that has to be done. And he says the same thing here. These people he had never met face to face, he says, I am absent in the flesh, but I'm with you in the spirit. And that just carries the idea that Paul's teaching is with them, right? That Paul's uh, understanding as an apostle is going to be with them, that they needed to be reminded of that. But there was evidently, much like the church in Sardis in Revelation, some who had not defiled their garments. Um, then let's look at this, sec, uh, this short quote from Matthew Henry where he gives a breakdown of verses uh, 4, 6, and 7, and then verses 8 to 12. And I'm going to kind of explain what he means because this could help us moving forward. It says he cautions them against false teachers among the Jews, verse 4, 6, and 7, and against the Gentile philosophy, verses 8 to 12. Now, that kind of sounds like Paul is saying these, or like Henry is saying that Paul is addressing Jewish issues in verse 4, 6, and 7, and Gentile issues in verses 8 to 12, that there were two sets of false teachers almost, and that's, that's not the way he goes on to explain it but that there was a blending of errors that borrowed from both Jewish and Gentile origin, right? Because you see in uh, verse 8 that they have these traditions of men. Um, in verse 18, um, the worshiping of angels and all those things, those were very prevalent in uh, 
more Jewish circles, but they had taken on these Gentile ideas as well. This is a very creative error that they were facing. So as we move through the rest of chapter 2 in the weeks to come, you need to have that in mind. They wouldn't have just gotten it from Jewish false teachers, but also from those who had been influenced by Gentile philosophy. Um, Then he speaks on being rooted and built up. We're just going to kind of hit some of the topical stuff in these uh, remaining three verses, 6, 7, and 8, and then we'll come back to them, Lord willing, uh, next week. But Matthew Henry says about being rooted and built up, this is in your handout as well. He says, the more closely we walk with Christ, the more we are rooted and established in the faith. Notice what he says there. The more closely we walk with Christ the more we are rooted and established in the faith. A good conversation or a godly life is the best establishment of a good faith. If we walk in him, we shall be rooted in him. And the more firmly we are rooted in him, the more closely we shall walk in him, rooted and built up. There is always, always, anytime someone is embracing false teaching, It is either to justify a sin that is already being committed or a sin that they are planning to commit. Every single time that I have counseled somebody, not just in direct relation to this church or in my life in general, someone who is embracing false teaching about Christ or desiring to reject Christ, it is because they are already living in a sinful way or they are desiring to do so and need justification. Because if you are rooted and built up in Christ, you will not be led into soul-damning error. There will be differences of opinion, like we see in Christian churches throughout history and today, of course. But if you are rooted and built up in Christ, you will be established in the faith. And then speaking on philosophy for just a moment, because... Some like to use this passage to say that uh, all philosophy is bad. That's not true um, because anytime you think, you're doing philosophy. Uh, But here's a quote from Matthew Henry. He says, There's a philosophy which is a noble exercise of our reasonable faculties and highly serviceable to religion. Such a study of the works of God as leads us to the knowledge of God and confirms our faith in him. But, this is what Paul's addressing, there is a philosophy which is vain and deceitful, which is prejudicial to religion and sets up the wisdom of man in competition with the wisdom of God. And while it pleases men's fancies, it ruins their faith. As nice and curious speculations about things above us or of no use and concern to us, or a care of words and terms of art, which have only an emptying and often a cheating appearance of knowledge. So Paul is not rejecting philosophy wholesale any more than he is rejecting tradition wholesale, any more than he is rejecting sound arguments wholesale. Right? He is rejecting them insofar as they lead away from Christ, right? because it's just common sense. That's just how those how words work. Okay, that's all my notes for today. Any comments, questions, thoughts?
we got a minute or two here. I just noticed in the back in the back how close together the layer is seen in the lock in the Yep, that makes sense. Very close to one that makes sense. Yeah. Wasn't Colossio the smaller of that area? Did I read that somewhere that the others had, had elevated at that point in time? That's correct, because what you said earlier, that was interesting to me, because I didn't know the other letters didn't exist. Right. So that caught my attention that, okay, why? The smallest, if that wasn't the truth, the smallest one that was in there was the letter that was kept in the other corner process. Yeah, I'd have to do a little more background on the population in the city and whatnot. I, I vaguely remember some details from when I was doing an introduction in chapter one, but it's done left my mind at this point, but I'll have to look into that. But I would say, I mean, because it, it seems to me there's a kind of a question in there, like, why this letter and not the other one? Evidently, the content of Coloss of this letter is that important, yeah. right? Um, not that we're necessarily led to the worship of angels, though, as I hinted at, you can see some parallels to a sort of Roman Catholicism in some of the stuff that we have here, uh, but that we are always in danger of forsaking the gospel, right? And that words do that to us. First uh, Corinthians is a lot about this as well, because they had, I don't know if you remember the little book I read from last week, but in Corinth, in Corinth there were these tremendous public orators that were able to persuade the people one way or the other. And Paul draws on, especially in the beginning of Corinthians, the supremacy of the wisdom of God in Christ, that it's greater than all the wisdom of the ages, that no man without the Spirit can understand the things of God. So. Yeah, and kind of playing off of the importance of words and the sufficiency of Christ. Like the things that we say and believe about Christ are literally matters of eternity. Right? We tend to think that it's more about how I feel about Christ. That's not necessarily the case, right? We do believe that our hearts are conformed, that our feelings, our emotions are geared towards Christ as we're brought into saving faith and sanctified and all those things. But it doesn't matter how we feel about the truth. It remains the truth. There is not multiple truths. There are one. There is one. And all that wisdom and all that truth and knowledge is hidden or revealed in Christ alone, truly. And... That was under attack, 
So let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for...